In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, I talked to Phil Robertson and Edwin Crozier about how to raise teens. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Ambry. We'll talk about how to be better Christians and people in the digital age. Let's go. If you're a parent, you may know about both the blessing and real struggle in raising teenage children. I love all my kids, but I've watched as they've matured and started to make identities of their own. There's a real challenge there. As you might know, Edwin and I started a book club with a few other Christians in the Tampa area, and one month we read a book called Hold On to Your Kids by Mate and Newfeld. It made a big impression on both of us, and I knew it was material I'd like to cover in the podcast. I also knew it would be a good idea if we brought in a ringer. Phil Robertson is one of the very best people I know who understands raising children and teens in particular. I've had both him and Edwin on the podcast before, and I knew the advice I would get would be biblically based and practical. Yes, I know this is a longer episode. As a matter of fact, it is the longest episode to date, but I hope it's worth your time. I thought the conversation was important. Hopefully, you'll agree. Hey guys, how y'all doing? Fantastic, brother. Doing very well. Thank you, Kenny. We're going to be talking about raising teens, but before we start talking about that, can I get you guys to introduce yourself? Edwin, let's just start with you, man. All right, Kenny, thank you very much for letting me be on your podcast again. It's certainly a joy. I'm really glad we're, we've become friends and able to interact in this way. I work with the Christians that meet on Livingston Avenue in Lutz, Florida, one of the co-hosts of Text Talk, and um, really good friend of Kenny Embry. And I like Phil, too. So why don't we introduce him also? I'm Phil Robertson. I work with the Glen Springs Church up here in Gainesville, Florida. I've been here about 11 years, and I have the special privilege to spend a lot of time with kids throughout the year. I actually just got back from a teen weekend out in Houston, and I try to hold or participate in about five or six teen weekends a year, as well as direct the Florida College Summer Camp. I have really just tried my best to dedicate myself to a large degree, but with teens and working with teens. And that's just something I greatly enjoy. Now, I will confess, I'm not sure why you got me back on this (laughs) podcast, especially with kids. When you sent me your thoughts and ideas, I immediately ran to my wife and I said, all right, Cheryl, help me out here. What am I supposed to say? How do we rear children? Uh, Remind me what you did and, and how I tried not to mess it up. That was my role. Uh, in this parenting I'll go process. ahead and tell you, Phil, I, I've already talked to Cheryl. She is going to apologize for all the things that you're going to say right after this. So I'm excited about that. Well, let me jump That's in here. Good. Yeah, listen me... to Cheryl. That would be my wisdom. What do you say? Today. I know I felt the same way when you invited me to be a part of this. I feel like I'm in this podcast episode as a person who read a book and trying to learn from it. (laughs) And Phil is the one I I truly respect on this. He's had some interaction even with my own kids through camp that has just been significant and wonderful. I I remember one year where my uh, son came home a changed person. I even called up Phil to tell him about it. So I'm super excited to be involved in this just because I get to listen to what Phil has to say before everybody else does. Let me go ahead and tell you. (laughs) <laughs> the reason I chose you, you two guys, and, and it's not Edwin. It's not just because you you suggested a book, man. You and I are in the thick of it, and Phil is done with it. I think one of the things <laughs> Phil has thrown up his 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 goal arms. He is now. 
<laughs> he has achieved the empty nest. We are only aspirants, Edwin. And quite frankly, you're a little bit farther along than I am. I'm the guy who has two people that are basically 18 and 20. And then I've got a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. <laughs> this becomes really relevant to me. We've all had experiences with teens. Why is this a hard time? This conversation has gotten started because you and I were talking about a book called Hold On to Your Kids. And yeah. what I really learned from that, it, it was life-changing for me. I wish I'd read it when it came out in 2004, when all my kids were younger. I think the teen years might have been not quite as hard for me. And that is that it, it's the difficulty that I discovered from reading this and then was able to see that I had fallen into it with my older children. And, and my older children are wonderful. I certainly don't want anybody to hear this and feel like I think, oh, my kids are terrible and I shouldn't have done all this. But it just <laughs> there are a lot of hardships throughout that. One of the main difficulties is we are in a culture that is blind to how dangerous peer attachment and orientation is, in fact, promotes it, and I was buying into it, rather than parent attachment and orientation, especially in the teen years. And it makes it hard when the main people a teenager is attached to and oriented to is not the family and not the adults that God gave this child to help them become the independent contributor to culture and society in his kingdom. Let me go back to your initial question, uh, why is it so hard? Let, I'd like to put that in perspective. For me, when my children were infants, boy, that was hard. There's constant need for attention, constant feeding, constant crying, constant need to be held. That, that was a 24-hour-a-day hard job. Now, was it enjoyable? Absolutely. But that was hard. When they got into the preteen years, it's daddy this, daddy that, daddy this, had to be here, had to be here. You couldn't do things uh, alone with your wife. They needed constant attention or unless you got a babysitter. That was its own level of hard. Hard to me is relative. And I, I, I would encourage parents especially, and I, I get it. I know where it's coming from when we say that. But the last thing we want to do is in any way build a self-fulfilling prophecy with our children. And our verbiage is extremely important. Is it hard? Well, all levels of child rearing are hard because we've never done yeah. it before. What was interesting is my kids kept growing right when I would figure out one stage, wow, I got this down. Now we're in the next stage. And I'm like, oh my word, somebody reset the game. <laughs> the whole thing's been reset. Somebody changed the rules. And so you had to constantly be growing and developing. Is it hard? Yes. Is it hard for Cheryl to be married to me? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but, I have to. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. Yeah, but God bless her for enduring uh -huh. hardship in those things because we all got to bear in mind it is relative. And children are a blessing no matter what age, no matter what yeah. challenge. They're a great blessing and a heritage from the Lord. I'm not going to disagree with that. All of us, Edwin already said this, all of us have read the same book. The title of it is Hold On To Your Kids. Edwin was the one who turned me on to it. It was something that, that meant a lot to me. What is the basic premise? It's the concept that we live in a culture and many of us have bought into the notion and are blind to the dangers of kids being peer oriented and attached rather than parent oriented and attached. And the thesis of these authors is that when you give up that attachment, when parents give up that attachment from their children, allowing it to go off to 
their peers, we basically lose the relational connection that allows our parenting to be effective. And one of the points that they bring up is that there are a lot of parenting books that are about techniques. And I've read tons of them. Okay, I'm going to try this technique. I'm going to try that technique. But if the attachment and the relationship is not there, then no technique is going to work. And what this is about is getting behind any technique and making sure that you have the attachment and relationship, that the children are oriented towards the parent, recognizing the need for the parent and their guidance and their emotional support, their intellectual support, their moral support, so that they stay oriented and attached to the parent. And one final thing I'll point out before handing it over to Phil for him to fill in the gaps here and, and correct me on any of this, <laughs> is that the other part of this thesis is that culturally, parent attachment was just the norm throughout world history. Yeah, It has been in the last century that we have with each passing generation bought into the lie that the best thing is to have children of every age attached to their peers more than to their parents. People in my generation, it was very easy for us to just allow that peer attachment because that's what we did. And look, I turned out okay, except actually in my honest moments, I have to admit, really not. I have a lot of things that aren't okay. And I realize some of it came from what very early on, that is exactly what I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you should say that, Edwin. I just actually had a conversation not too long ago with a fella who grew up in a divorced home, was actually reared through the formula of being a latchkey kid in programs and then with kids and this, that, and the other. And yet he was still alive, but he had all kinds of emotional issues. And now he's rearing his children. And he said, it worked for me. It should work for them. And I'm like, look at your life, my friend. You are an emotional wreck. Your marriage is unstable, just like the one you grew up in. And unfortunately, our society has just accepted these things as norms Instead of going, wait a minute, maybe there's a better way. I'm with you. The premise of the book, without a doubt, was about attachment. And parents parents need to develop that attachment with their children, and it shouldn't come from peers. And that attachment is actually, as the authors wrote in the book, and this is a child psychologist that I thought had really good insight, attachment's going to come from your senses, uh, a sense of sameness in what you find with those around you, belonging significance, being known, and your feelings with them. That's so true. And why would I want to give that up to somebody else as a parent? Why do I want their belonging to be something that they feel belonging to someone else instead of me or have somebody else's feelings instead of mine? Because ultimately, no one is going to love and care for a child more than their parent. I don't care who it is, how much they profess it. I'm a camp director. I, I do a lot of things with teens, but I'll never, ever be able to trump what a parent has for their child. And that's the main premise of the book that I think a lot of parents need to get back to. Don't give up your child to, to the world. Be very greedy with that from the moment they're born all the way up till they're ready to fly out of the nest and go off on their own. They need to be attached to their parents. 
And as parents, we've got to make sure we create that and maintain And giving that. that attachment and orientation up to someone who loves them a little bit less than us is one thing, but the peer orientation and attachment is giving that up to someone who actually doesn't care one whit. The, the <laughs> peer culture has very little concern for one another. It is selfishly driven by every individual. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and they're every single one of them Okay, exceptions, I'm sure, but every single one of them are out to protect and preserve themselves. They don't have my kids' best interests at heart. And let me insert something here. I grew up basically peer attached as well. My friends were wonderful. They loved me. They wanted the very best for me. The problem was they didn't know two feet ahead of them much more than I did. They didn't have any experience I didn't as well. They really genuinely wanted the best for me. They just didn't know what the best for me was. They had no frame of reference for that. They, they really did. I, I see what you're saying. It's not that they don't care. It's just that they don't have the capacity. It's that, that they just don't have that. They don't have the life experience because they've already discounted their parents and my parents' life experience. When I was reading the first couple of chapters of this book, I was like, wow, wouldn't a great chapter right now in Deuteronomy 6 just fit perfectly? <laughs> yeah. Or let's go to rearing your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The biblical model was the parents reared yeah. their kids. When they got up, when they lay down, when they came in, when they went out, they were around their parents. You think of Jesus yeah. growing up. His first 30 years were no different than anybody else growing up in Palestine. Why did he learn to be a carpenter? Because he learned it from yeah. his father. It was his mother and his dad that were the major influence in his mm -hmm. life. And the community that would be aiding them in that would be their community from the yeah. synagogue. What you find with that biblical model is parents. Who are the kids? Yeah. Parents. Who are the kids attached to? Yeah. Their parents. Who are the ones that are majorly involved in every aspect of their life? their right. parents. They didn't give it up to the world. There wasn't public education. There wasn't ways to send your kid off for somebody else to take care of them. So again, let me just qualify this. I'm not dogging on those things. But what I'm saying is the attachment for the child was 100% to the parent. And, and the parent's role was to rear that child to love the Lord and to love their neighbor. And like you said, Kenny, become a major uh, factor in helping and benefiting the yeah. lives of others. Phil, Phil, you may not be the guru of parenting, but when that guy dies, it's going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, please. But, but, but it's interesting. If you were to say that today, be mindful of allowing somebody else to rear your children with an infant. We all get so busy and so our kids end up in daycare. They end up over here and they end up in these places. And sometimes those things are needed and I totally yeah. get it. But what we're doing is we're slowly chipping away every single time we give somebody else ownership of mm -hmm. our children. I even if my child's in public school and when my kids went to college, I was actively involved in what was going on right. in their life. I, I knew what was going on. We, we talked to teachers. We knew things. And there has to be that constant dependency for the child to learn from the parent because I'm going to do what's best for them more than what a peer can or just society in general. Can I, I want to circle back to the issue about the, the teens caring for one another. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. My friends, when I was in high school, cared about me. Yeah. They didn't want me getting in a car wreck. 
They wanted yeah. me being successful. That is all true. But I think what we have to recognize is in those teen years, we are immature. Yeah. And, and being immature, we are not following Philippians 2 that points out that I should be putting others' interests above my own, mm -hmm. that I should be considering others as more significant than myself. In those teen years, for all the care that we have for our fellow teens, we are still just trying to scratch out what we think is best for us in those moments. And yes, do teens care for one another? I, I don't want to act like there's nothing there. But I think when push comes to shove, you've got an immaturity that's going to cause self to always be sought and protected and promoted above the others that are around me. That's a great point, Edwin. And, and it ultimately comes down to a peer is not a parent. That is correct. A parent is yeah. not a peer. A parent is not a friend. Uh, a parent is not somebody whose major role in life is just to make you feel good and let you vent and let you do whatever you want to do. No, a parent is in, if you will, God's role of instructing, guiding, disciplining, teaching, loving, yeah. helping us nourish and nourishing us and helping us grow. That's the parent's role. And that's what we all need. Yeah. And Edwin, I, I completely agree with that. I think one of the things that I would say is peers are not in a situation to understand sacrificial love because they haven't had to sacrifice for their love. A parent does. You show me a parent that, that does not wrestle with issues of guilt. If they don't wrestle with issues of guilt, they're not really a parent. I second guess just about every decision that I make. I don't show my kids that, but I, I'm just sitting here thinking, and, and, and I can't tell you how many times Katie and I have decided, no, we're not going to do that because our kids need to do X, Y, and Z. I was the soccer taxi for a while. I think that's a very astute observation. I think our peers basically give us the very best that they have, and their very best is just not that important. They can't take our kids someplace they haven't been, and that, I think they just don't have that capacity. But no, I, I think you're exactly right. There's a lot going on in those teenage years, and I, I'll say there is a separation that you want to have happen. I think the nightmare for all of us would be that we have our children that are 45 years old and living in the basement. There is a separation that you do want to have happen. How do you help your children develop independence and attachment at the same time? I go back to Stephen Covey's book in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he highlighted that in our culture, we tend to think maturity equals independence, when yeah. in fact, maturity is interdependence. Ooh, I like that. Our goal as parents is to help our children become independent individuals. My job is to grow my kids up, get them out of the house so they can be contributors to society. And I was wanting to try that as early as possible. And, and I told them that in explicit ways and a lot of implicit ways. What really hit me was a statement in this book where it highlighted that when we push for that too early, we believe we have given our children independence when in fact all we have done is shifted their dependence to someone else. Yeah, That was the key that struck me and, and hit me right between the eyes because I realized that is exactly how, for most of my parenting, I conducted things. I thought I was giving my kids independence. What I actually did was push them to be dependent on someone else. And uh, I wish I could go back and correct that. I can't fix what I did 10, 15 years ago. I can work with, with my children where they are now and work on having that connection at the level we can now.
I think those are exciting years uh, and challenging years, certainly when our children start exercising independence and we want them to do that. I think our biggest challenge sometimes as parents during those years is we've established some expectations that, well, are just a little bit over the top, or we've got some expectations that are really not founded. For example, we struggle when our kids in their independent years disagree with (laughs) us. That's part of being independent. And as a parent, be ready for that. That's a wonderful opportunity for now you and your child to have some discussions. This just because I said so answer is no longer sufficient, and it shouldn't be. But we need to be mindful of expecting them to be like us. Praise God, they're not like us. They're going to have different desires, ambitions, different attitudes. Uh, a, a book that we found very helpful in rearing our kids was The Five Love Languages for Kids. They have their own means and ways of being loved, and I need to feed that. And I, they're learning. where That's becoming more evident in what drives them in those teenage years. And I got to quit expecting them to make good decisions. They're teens. How much research have we read that our brains are not fully developed until our <laughs> early right. 20s? And if you look on social media, some people's brains are never developed. Developed clearly. But our children, they're still growing. So don't expect them to be perfect. Don't expect them to make perfect decisions. Don't expect them uh, to be just like us. But it's that time that you've got to be patient and work with them through these years. It's like letting the rope out just enough so that they can run but not get hurt and then pulling it back in. And you spend a lot more time discussing and reasoning and allowing things to sink into their mind. To me, the teenage years are fascinating years in the sense, yeah, they're learning to work their own wings. Yeah. I want them to come to the same answers that I did because I know that my answers work. <laughs> Look how I turned out, Phil. I, I, I am quite frankly amazing. Indeed. But I think that's hard for me to understand that not all answers that I arrived at are, number one, absolutely right, and number two, don't have other options that could be just as useful as what I chose. Does that make sense? Yeah, but here's what's so cool about this. I wasn't so interested in their answers as much as their reasoning. Yeah. Okay, how did you reach this conclusion? There's another good book that we used with our kids called The Thinking Toolbox. And and what it taught kids is to learn how to make an argument and how to reason. So here's an argument that's a red herring. Here's an ad hominem. What became so funny is at the dinner table, when discussions would start or somebody would start making an argument, our kids would pop up at one another and say, well, wait a minute, that's a red herring. I don't know what you're trying to say there, but that doesn't fit this exactly <laughs> at all. Or that, And it became very fun. And so it made them think, okay, you want this conclusion, but you can't force it if you're using bad reasoning. And again, that, that takes a little more time, but that's what I wanted my kids to learn, how to reason, how to think. And clearly all of us, we make bad decisions. We, we would love to go back and do things. And so we want our kids, especially during those teenage years, to learn healthy habits on how to reason and think through situations. Speak for yourself, Phil. I have not made any mistakes. Edwin, <laughs> have you made any mistakes? So many. <laughs> so, so many. Oh, man. One of the things that I really benefited from in reading this particular book was that this issue is not simply about our children being oriented towards us rather than towards peers, but that it was about the fact that 
helping our children be oriented by us. When I push my kids to be independent of me earlier than they can just be independent and they end up becoming dependent on their peers, it's their peers that are orienting them. It's their peers that are providing the compass for Mm -hmm. them. And I don't want that. I know that we have this idea that if we make sure that all their peers are church-going peers, then everything's going to work out okay. That is not the way it was <laughs> yeah. for me. Teenagers all suffer from the same problem that Phil talked about moments ago, the immaturity. The brain is still developing. Even as adults, we make bad decisions, but as teens, super bad decisions. And so what I want to do is maintain this connection so that when my children are seeking direction, my wife and I are the ones that are at the top of -hmm. their list for people to reach out to. When I allow their dependents to go to their peers, they only look cool when they ignore me. And they only look cool when they decide that I'm wrong. You look at so many TV shows, even the Disney Channel, we actually had to restrict that from our kids because it always made parents look dumb. The father was always an idiot. Getting back to that peer thing too, Edwin, another great quote from the book was, getting along with others does not arise from peer contact. I thought that was a great line. We think, oh, I've got to socialize my kids. They got to, so I'm just going to put them in groups of other kids and I'm just going to throw them in these functions and they're going to learn how to get along. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't happen like that. You just don't throw them into the group and expect things to work out. Generally, in situations like that, they learn how to fight. They learn self-preservation. They learn to find their group. That's what we all do. That's not getting along in that concept. And so it's allowing them to maybe get into a group, but you're still very much involved in what's going on with that group. And I'll amen your thoughts, certainly, about just being around church kids. Doesn't the Apostle Paul warn us about that in, in, in the Corinthian letter? Don't even hang around a brother. Certainly, if it challenges your faith, you got to be careful. And parents need to be involved. One of my favorite principles that I really got out of this particular book, maybe even a specific illustration, reminds me of where I was when all four of my children were toddlers. The authors talked about two different approaches we take to Connecting with other adults even. Uh, And they talked about, say, you've gone to some kind of get together and you've got your two-year-old child on your arms and you hand them off to some other adult and the child is kicking and screaming and hollering. And my approach was, hey, you know what? They'll get over that. They'll get over that. In fact, I need to teach them to get over that because they need to be independent of me. They shouldn't be relying on me so much in that. And I walk off, I leave them with the other person. And yeah, look, you know what happens in 10, 15, 30 minutes? They love it. They're happy. They're smiling. I come back. They're okay. But one of the things that I got out of this is that what's now happened is I have produced a competing attachment, a competing orientation, rather than a cooperating and complementary orientation and attachment. A much better way would be for me to let my child, even as a toddler, see me interact with this other person, see that I say that this person is safe, that this person is okay, and now when they become attached to that person, it's because they are borrowing my attachment rather than having a competing one or again, being shoved off to that dependence on someone else. Their interaction with this other person is because they've seen me in that interaction. Okay. You've messed up that relationship with your teen. 
So at this point, what you need to do is just go ahead and write them off. You need to go ahead and move on to the next children that might be salvageable. Is that right? No. <laughs> How do we reconnect to teens that, quite frankly, have already started down the line of, that's just dad. And this is what my friends say. And my friends, they wouldn't say this. I know they wouldn't say this. But my friends are a lot smarter than my dad. How do I reconnect with that? I, I think, first of all... <laughs> Don't assume that the relationship is totally broken. Inside each and every one of us, I don't care who we are or how we may act at times, every single one of us want and long for a relationship with our parents. That just never ends. We may have to put on a front in front of friends. We, We may have to put on some sort of a mask to act tough at times, but... I think inwardly, every single one of us have been given by God uh, a deep desire to be loved and cared for by our parents. So I, I would fight the urge to feel like that's gone, even when you may see that or that may be exhibited from your teen. I, I think we look at this the way the Lord longs to get reattached to all of us. How does He reattach Himself to us? How does He bring His children back to Him who have been influenced by their peers. I think of the Tower of Babel. When God divided people with the languages, he realized that their peer relationship was not good for them. That's what that was all about. It was not good for every man to speak the same language and to be influenced by the world. And so he put in place a Mm -hmm. separation. He put in place a means to make man reconsider who he's looking to for advice. I think the way the Lord always reconnects with us and the way we reconnect with any individual is through grace, showing mercy and grace to them, to show them undying love and proclaiming that love, and to seek them from where they are. I had an interesting conversation with a kid not too long ago who's in a divorced home, and now one of his parents is a practicing homosexual. He is struggling uh, with that. And he's, Mr. Phil, you know what I do? I, I know what the Bible says, but I can't believe that would be wrong or this, that, in the eyes of God. And I'm really struggling with this. And I said, well, let's just get together to talk. And, and he said, you're not going to be mad at me if I voice an opinion different than you. And I'm like, absolutely not. And said, I'll tell you this right off the bat. I'll always love you regardless of what you think or do. That's a constant. You will always receive unconditional love from me. Well, I I guess he had never heard that. Tears came to his eyes. And so we have a relationship now, and hopefully we can try to work through some of these things. But I think that's so important for our children to hear from us, and that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt just how much we love them. And that's what our Lord does to bring us back, I believe, is that mercy, that grace, and that love. And it it will have a powerful impact on kids. Yeah. Edwin, you and I had talked about before the importance of that recollecting your child. And I think that's a lot of the answer here. What's the importance of that recollection of your child? What is it first and what what's the importance? Okay, yeah. Collecting our children. This is one of the principles that our authors talk about. And it's the idea of understanding that attachment, having parental attachment doesn't mean the parents are the only people the kids are around. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I've tethered my child to me so that they don't interact with peers or with other adults. 
But it is the recognition that every time they have gone off, when they come back, my first step needs to be to collect them, to recollect them, to let them know that, hey, what matters most right now is that is our connection and our relationship. <laughs> and yeah. so so it's just a very practical and pragmatic thing that I've had to recognize just about changing my own behavior is I go off to the office during the day. My kids at various times have gone to various places, sometimes homeschooled, sometimes public schooled, sometimes going to work. Now we've come back together and I pull into the house and I realize that my daughter didn't weed the flower bed today, like she had said she was going to do last mm -hmm. night or this morning. My standard modus operandi is walk through the door and say, what's up? How come the flower bed's not weeded? And that is so modus operandi that even recently when I've been trying to behave differently, that exact thing happened. I walked through the door and the first thing out of my daughter's mouth was before you get on to me about not weeding, let me tell you what happened. And man, when that happened, on the one hand, I appreciate the fact that she had realized she had made a commitment and she wanted to defend it, but it hit me. Wow. Even as much as I've been trying to work on this recently, my youngest daughter still has the idea that the first thing I'm going to do when I get through is throw up this wall, this what happened. Okay. Instead, what I am now trying to do is come in and the very first thing is we're going to have, I love yous, hugs. Hey, how was your day? Let's talk. Let's connect. The weeding that didn't happen needs to be dealt with because that was a commitment that didn't get kept. Part of my orienting my daughter as a parent is teaching her, keep your responsibilities. But what yeah. I need to do first is collect that relationship. Otherwise, everything I do to talk to her about the weeding, she's not listening to anyway. It's not important right. to her. She doesn't care what I say about it, no, no matter what. But when we reestablish that connection first, and honestly, I have a sneaking suspicion that this will also help my relationship with Marita. Uh, that, that's yeah. my wife, for those of you who don't know that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love those little rituals. It, it, in my family, I tell my kids I love them. And then almost immediately I say, and you guys know you're weirdos. And they all say, and you're a weird, weirdo too, dad. And I don't know why. That just kind of melts me. It's just, yeah, you're an embry. You belong. You're just somebody that, you're my kid. You're just my kid. If I can jump in on this again, one of my kids has just been going through it this year. Just mm -hmm. really uh, the start of this year. And there, there were some things that happened at the end of last year that hit him really hard. And it was emotionally traumatizing for him. And he even ended up in the hospital because of just how that was hitting him emotionally and psychologically. So this has been a year of healing and struggle. And what I wanted was for that to all heal up just that fast. And yeah. everything's just back to normal and back to good. And it hasn't been that. It's been a slow process. Things are improving and getting better, but things are not where I want. And what I realize is that my long-term modus operandi is when I talk to my son, here's all the things you're not doing right yet. Start doing these right. I'm going to give you all this instruction because if you just started doing these things, then all of this healing process would happen more quickly. And that was actually doing nothing except putting up more walls and, and actually prompting him to do the exact opposite. And so I was really thankful when reading this particular book, it prompted me to realize, you know what, we're in a just a very difficult spot. This is more than just peer orientation. This is about mental health and all of that. And where I need to start is by collecting my son. 
rather than me knocking on the door and complaining because his room's not clean, it was, hey, man, can we talk and end it with a hug and an I love you and walk out. And immediately that changed how other conversations that we had to have were taken. We're not out of the woods yet. It's a growth process. Things are moving in a positive direction. But I think part of what's helping that move in a positive direction is that I am focusing more on this idea of collecting my son rather than correcting my son. And, and when I get that in the right order, corrections happen a lot more naturally because I become a person that he wants to listen to in his as a compass. I'm not saying that, oh boy, you follow this technique, that'll happen all the time. I don't know where this is all going to end up. But I just know immediately I saw a shift, not only in me, but in him and in our whole family relationship in that. Our kids are going to make some really boneheaded mistakes. It's important that they learn from those boneheaded mistakes and that failure is often the best teacher that they'll ever have. And one of the things that I think is important for us is to help them reframe what failure is and what it's not. And I think that's something quite frankly, a parent is uniquely qualified to do. How do we do that? All of us make mistakes. The, the challenge for the parent is that we want to make sure that the consequences of the mistakes are as minimal as possible. I want them to have freedom, but I allow that freedom with the anticipation. They may really mess this up. So I don't want the consequence to be something that lingers any longer than it should. And so that's what you're always keeping in mind as a parent. And it's not just a negative mindset, but you're always thinking, okay, if this went wrong, how wrong is wrong? How bad is it going to be? (laughs) And so you keep those things in mind. For example, when our kids start dating, you establish some parameters So things don't go wrong. Are they going to be just like all of us, experimental? Are are they going to have natural hormones? Are they going to have uh, the same kind of feelings and challenges? Yes. So you know that. So you limit those things. We try to do that with a lot uh, of our kids when they start driving. You know, there's nothing scarier than when your kid gets behind a wheel. There's absolutely nothing scarier than the world. And so you, it's at that moment, well, you try to establish some safeguards. Okay, you can drive here, but not here. You can go here, but not here. And when you go, it better be like this. And yeah, I better not catch you on your phone. You make sure that you're always mindful of that and allowing them to just stretch a little bit at a time. And I think that's the challenge. But at the same time, it's much better for them to learn and even learn how to fail under yeah. your guidance than somebody else's or especially their peers. Yeah, I, I want to build on Phil's illustration about teaching your kids to drive. <laughs> yeah, Because I feel like if I were going to be saying, you know what, my kids, it's, it's really, it's just about independence. It's just about independence. You have to drive on your own. And you know what I'm going to do? Here's the keys. I know you're 14. I know you got your permit this morning. By the way, I guess that shows how old I am and the fact that I was from Arkansas because because back then we could get our permits at 14. Anyway, hey, here, take the keys. Go on. Figure it out. You'll learn it. You'll figure it out. You hit a couple cars. You'll figure out not to do that. The goal is to get my kids driving on their own. That's the goal. And if I teach and train my kids in such a way that they can only ever drive while I'm in the car, I haven't done my job. But there is a period of time that when I let them go out 
on their own, it is too soon to do that. And so with all of my kids, there's with the three that are driving, there have been steps. We're going to start with driving around the parking lot at the church building. Yeah. So that if something goes wrong and you hit something, it's our car and that's it and the tree or the parking sign or something like that. <laughs> and then we're going to move up to back roads and we're slowly letting you become more and more comfortable with this and you becoming more and more independent. The great thing about it is that it's still attached to me as the parent being the one who is teaching and orienting and helping my child know here's the kind of things we do. There there comes a point, though. I, I'm sure there's a place where this metaphor breaks down. There does come a point when it's OK. You, you've been trained. You know how to drive the technicalities. Now you're going to go out and you're going to make mistakes. And just like when I make mistakes, I have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. And uh, and what that means is, it's like I've been in car wrecks. My kids are going to end up in car wrecks. Yeah, I think there's probably just a lot in that illustration that helps us with this, helping them develop independence, giving them some safety, being there alongside them, directing, orienting, giving a little bit more freedom, giving a little bit more independence in yeah. that driver training, just like with all of life. It's an unfortunate metaphor that you're using there, Phil, because I... My son, Jake, bless his heart. I was trying to make the point that if you miss the turn the first time, you're going to have another opportunity. You're just going to have to turn around, something like that. And one of the things that he did was he missed the turn the first time. And I said, okay, is this where you expected to be? No, it's way over there. Sam's Club is way over there. Then you're going to have to correct for that now. So what are you going to have to do? I guess I'll have to make another turn. Yeah, you're going to have to make another turn. Where are you going to make that turn? Can I make it up here? Yeah, you can make it up here. And so he turns around and he comes back. And, and then he, and then he misses the turn again. And I said, okay, are you where you thought we were going to be? No, no, I'm not. There's Sam's club right over there. Yeah, that's right. He did that seven times. And I got to tell you, (laughs) there came a point and I, I don't say this with pride, but I, but I got to the point where I was like, Jake, turn right now. This is when you, Kenny, go ahead, Edwin. If, If you made it seven times. (laughs) You did way better than I ever did, ever. I was going to come back to this and talk about the fact that though in our teaching and our training, we've got to make sure that we have a lot of patience, a lot of care, because I think one of the mistakes that I often made while training the kids is that when they made the mistake, I acted like they shouldn't have made any mistakes. This goes back to what Phil said earlier. Yeah, and I think think there's a mentality we got to be careful of is thinking mistakes are bad. One of the greatest teachers is failure, and we don't need to be afraid of failure. The challenge is we don't want that failure to have lifelong consequences. That's what we're trying to avoid. And so any of those opportunities are teaching moments, and and it's a great story later. I can tell you the story of my dad teaching me how to drive a stick shift. It was the funniest moment of his life. I didn't think he'd ever stop laughing, and I'm crying because I just bought a car I can't (laughs) drive. And and it was just hilarious to him. But at the same time, we want these moments to be our moments with our kids. I want when they fail to come to me, when they need help, come to me. This is a safe place to come where you can say, man, dad, I really messed this up. And dad's going to not say, what's wrong with you? How in the world? No, dad's going to say, oh yeah, I've been there. Let's talk about it. How, what happened? That's gold. Whoever comes to you with their failures, that means that's that person who really respects you and loves you. And I want my kids 
always yeah. to be that person. Yeah. And I think they need to hear that from me as well. I think it's important for them, especially as they get older, they learn that, hey, dad makes mistakes too. Let me tell you what happened when I started learning how to drive. That's reassuring to them. I'm, I'm with you on that, Phil. Here's my problem. If my child comes to me and says, hey, I've got something to talk to you about, I, now I'm set, okay, all right, I know where we are. Doesn't matter what comes out next. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be compassionate. The stage has been set. My struggle has been in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, something just happens, and I react from my own immaturity and struggle and some of the struggles that I still deal with because I was peer-attached as a teenager and carry some of that mental space with me even now in parenting my kids, which, of course, the problem is in reacting those ways in those Shocking moments in those moments where I wasn't expecting it in those moments where I didn't get to settle down and prepare then turned into making me the person they were less likely to bring those moments to. And it's man, it is so much about trying to be in that proper headspace as much as possible. Both of you guys have basically referenced this. I know that I was at the end of the rope with Jake in the car. I think my patience was done. I don't know if I could have exhibited much more patience, but I also know I didn't react very well. And one of the things Jake said was, dad, you yelled at me. And I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I said, I need you to get this and you're not getting it. And we need to figure out what that is. We need to make a connection that's not happening here, but I shouldn't have yelled at you. And you're right. I'm sorry. Dad doesn't always get it right. And when dad doesn't get it right, he tries to make it better. It's the only lesson that God cannot teach because God is perfect. It's the lesson that, you know what, I'm going to mess this up. Watch me mess it up. Call me on it. And and, and let's be better because of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) my children are in their 20s, and I I apologized for something the other day. I was just real busy. I was trying to get out of town to go somewhere, and I didn't even realize something had been going on in one of their lives. It wasn't massive, but I I was just so busy that when I'm talking to my wife later that night, she goes, yeah, I did. Did you hear about this? I was like, no, I just talked to him this. Oh man, I was so busy. I didn't say, hey, I'm sorry. But I think that's important. And here's, can you just go back sure. to the book real quick? The idea of winning them back. The, the authors make three points and boy, these are biblical concepts. Number one, you make the relationship with you a priority. Yeah. That's everything. You think how our heavenly father has made our relationship with him a priority to him. You see what I'm saying? There's tons of verses there. You make it a priority. It becomes your priority, not your job, not your own free time. Your life is about your kids. Make it a priority. That's how you win them back. Number two, you stay connected even when you're physically apart. I know some of you have heard I, I do a lot of teaching on technology and there's the challenges of it. Boy, there's a lot yeah. of blessings with it. And we can stay so connected to our kids who are now scattered in multiple states through a family text to constantly stay connected. I I think that's essential, not just to winning them back, but in any healthy relationship, even with my wife, the constant connection is there. That was number two. And good night. Think of all the biblical principles and verses we could throw into that one. And then the third one is safeguard what is sacred. Here's some things that are sacred in your life. I've got to guard that with my life. Your faith with the Lord, 
your well-being, your character, your heart. Guard your heart. Isn't that what the yeah. proverb tells us? For out of it flow all the yeah. issues of life. These are the things. And so you do all you can to have restrictions and boundaries in place to guard those things. That's how you win them back. And that's how the Lord wins us back. I thought those were good points in the book. Uh, make the relationship a priority. Stay connected even when physically apart and safeguard yeah. what is yeah. sacred. I want to be connected to my kids. I, I want to be a part of their lives. I, I, I want to have an influence on them. But you guys both know people that are, quite frankly, going overboard on this. That They're just a little bit too connected into their kids' business. And quite frankly, there's a point at which they, they need to start butting out of some of their business. Because I, I think there's a razor's edge here. That there's being connected, and then there's being controlling, and then there's being codependent. How do you ride that balance? What is that balance? I, I think it's important as parents that we recognize that, yes, we definitely hover over our children. That is natural. That's a good thing that needs to be there. But we also need to have the mindset of my kids can learn from other people as well. And there's some safe environments that they can be in that can help them grow. I'm especially fond of camp. You don't need to hover over your children. Trust me. There's great people there looking after your kids. Going to Bible class. Let them go to yeah. Bible class. Even when you go out of town, that's going to be a good environment. Surround them with godly yeah. people. I'm getting them with somebody who's going to share my values, share our love for the Lord, share our passion in so many ways, but they'll hear it from a different voice. The last thing, my kid, when they get the teenage years, they've heard it from me. They're done. They've heard it from dad a million times. So how do I make sure they hear it again? I have somebody else to do it for me. The struggle with helicopter parenting is that it's actually trying to live the child's life for them and through yeah. them. It's I'm not training you to make wise decisions and then letting you make decisions. I'm calling you every day to monitor and manage your decisions. When we are apart, I'm uh, more than just staying connected, as Phil was talking about. I am staying entrenched and engrafted, and I'm going to call and make sure you're doing your homework. It's a crazy thing in our culture that... We have this thing that's happening that takes all of our kids and culturally says to them, the people you should be most attached to, the people you should be oriented towards are these peers. That's how you're going to grow best. And, and then we do all of these things to rather than allowing parents to have actual attachment to promote in them this hovering. I understand every kid's at a different place, but there's a difference between we're training, we're staying connected, we're attaching, I'm orienting you and providing a compass for you versus I'm living your life for you. I think as parents, one of our biggest struggles is a fear of failure and everybody's going to yeah. figure us out. We want to safeguard everything where we think our kids are perfect, our family's perfect, and I don't want anybody to know any of our issues because if my kid misbehaves over here or my kid doesn't handle this over here, that yeah. reflects on me. Boy, we got to get that out of our mind. That's pride. That is ego. That will eat at us. It'll eat at our children. Don't be afraid of failure. If, if a kid doesn't do his homework, that's on him. So how'd that work out for you? Now, granted, we're worried, oh, the teacher saw that he didn't do it. Oh, man. No, the, the teacher knows what that's like. 
I, I can guarantee, here's the thing I, I try to impress upon parents too, especially when kids misbehave at camp or misbehave in anything. I mean, I don't think any less of the parent. Absolutely not. You know why? Because I'm a parent. <laughs> but we sometimes internalize that. And so that makes us hover. We try to protect them to such an extent that we don't want them to get a boo-boo. They'll be fine. God gave them a body that, that, that scratches heel. It doesn't mean that you're reckless with that. But it's the idea that I think sometimes the fear of failure carries over into some parents' lives. And we've got to just be a little bit more humble. And it is a balancing act. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a balancing act of hovering, but also letting them go. I mean, you know, one of the best tools of parenting that you have, mm -hmm. especially in this regard, talk to yeah. other parents that are older yeah. than you. You ever heard about going to the elders at the gate of the city? Why were they there? To counsel people. Do we do that today? When's the last time you said, I need to go talk to the elders because I want to learn how to be a better parent. Or I want to go meet with these parents who are much older than me because I saw how they reared their children, whether good or bad. Yeah. What can I learn? Those are great opportunities that we just cast aside because we fall into this horrible assumption. They reared their kids 20 years ago. It's totally different now. No, it isn't. So, Phil, what you just said, I think, is like a gold mine of connections to what we've been talking about and, and us as parents and our kids. And there's three things I thought of while you were talking. I hope I can remember all of them. Number one, <laughs> just like a preacher. I will He's have got three points and no. an invitation. Um, all right. <laughs> first of all, the first thing that doesn't necessarily connect to everything else we've been talking about, but what you've just described there is the kind of catastrophizing we can do. They, they don't get their homework done and, oh, no, they're going to be living under the bridge. <laughs> they're, yeah. they, the they, they didn't the get their homework yeah. done, which means they're going to fail this class, which means they're going to fail high school, which means they won't get into college. They won't get a good job. They'll be living down by the river under the bridge. Yeah. I have got to make sure to do that. Okay. So let's roll the catastrophizing tape back and recognize that this is a great opportunity for them to make a little failure because they're going to learn something about what happens when you don't fulfill your responsibilities. And they learn it in a much safer environment. So that's yeah. a really powerful thing. The, the second thing that really popped into my head is that some of what you just described, Phil, about why we parents act the way we act, I think comes from our own peer orientation that we grew up with. Because when I am peer oriented and peer attached, what is the number one thing that fills my mind and takes my days and, and does all gets all of my bandwidth? I gotta, gotta, I gotta look, look great, great to, to my, my peers. peers. And look, I'm just gonna tell you. I was peer attached. And for me, it, it's not a failing on my parents. My mom died when I was 12 years old. My dad married my stepmom when I was 13. She was great. I loved her. I loved her then. I loved her now. It was not a wicked stepmother situation. We've had really good relationship. But guys, I was 12 years old. And mm -hmm. the reality is, all of a sudden, I, I was in a crazy space. I got attached mm -hmm. to peers. That's just what I did. Maybe if that hadn't happened, they would have messed up and I would have, I, I don't know. I, 48 years old, like we were saying earlier, we like to say, well, I turned out okay. What I mean by that is, is I'm able to hold a job and I've got some things that I'm good at. But let me tell you, I am 48 years old and I have one of the worst disabilities that any preacher could have. And that is, I am way too concerned about what everybody else thinks about me. I am always worried that when this is done, I'm going to look bad. I'm going to look foolish. It prompts competition between me and other preachers that I hate, and I have to call and talk to them about and try to get over that. It, it just causes all kinds of problems, and it impacted my parenting 
Because rather than being able to parent my child just from I love you and this is best for you, there were too many situations where I was parenting from you just embarrassed me. You just made me look bad, which kept me from being able to collect them and connect with them. It prompted me to actually train them by my own example that the thing that matters most is how do you look to other people? And that's the struggle. Now, the third thing. I think I'm going to get all three of them in. The, th- <laughs> the third thing is, Phil, you talk, you asked the question, how often do we go to the older folks and say, how do I do? Why do you think we struggle to go to the elders and ask them? Why do you think we struggle to go to older folks who have been here before us? Because we have been raised to be peer attached. So we get together in parenting groups of everyone else who is in the exact same spot we are and we pool our ignorance. Maybe there's one person who leads it because they were the old couple, but it's not a habit for us because, and this takes back to what Phil was talking about earlier when he was saying, let your kids go spend time with other people. And that is fantastic. And of course, some of that's going to be peers. But you know what? I just need to recognize that other 19-year-olds are probably not going to give my 19-year-old great advice. Other 13-year-olds are not going to give my 13-year-old great advice. So when when I want to borrow someone else's influence, I need to make sure it's somebody who has good influence because of their experience and their wisdom. Again, we we think, and I may be opening a can of worms here, but we we think the best way to handle church and get our kids to stay in church is to have a wonderful youth group where they're just hanging out with church kids, when in reality, the better thing will be to attach them to adults and older people who have gone this way before and stuck with it. I'm going to amen that and amen that and amen that. You don't need a youth being your youth director. You don't need their peers being the driving force there. That needs to be somebody who's older. It needs to be, and and, and we need to long for that. And I'll amen every point you made, and I'll even start the invitation <laughs> song here for you if you want, Edwin. But another reason we don't sometimes go to the older generation yeah. is we don't like what they're going to tell us. Yeah. And they challenge us. They challenge us. And and sometimes we don't want to hear that. And we got to be careful. Here's, let me give you another quote from this book that I thought uh-huh. was very powerful. Our society puts a higher value on consumerism than a healthy development of children. Yeah. And I think if we're not careful, it's not just society that does that. We do that in our churches. Our value is and our higher desire is for the consumerism, whether it's materialism or whether it's influence, and instead of really putting it on the healthy growth of our children. And if you think about it, for Edwin and myself, when I went into preaching, especially started it full-time and gave up the media business, Cheryl and I had a long talk. We did not want to be one of those families that went out there to save the world and lost our kids. Yeah. So our kids are going to come first. Yeah. They're the priority. And everything that we're going to be mindful of that we do, even in the kingdom, is going to be restricted on how's this affecting our kids because that's the that's my first mission field and I want to win it and I want to own it and I want every church out there all of our brethren to recognize yeah, that's your yeah, first yeah. mission field win your children and the kingdom grows significantly and that needs to be the focus the healthy development of our children spiritually physically and morally ethically yeah that's your if focus. I can build on that could you 
there, there was a quote that I've been thinking about here that actually ties into what you just uh, went to. Here's the statement. Once a society begins valuing economics over culture, breakdown is inevitable. And the attachment village begins to disintegrate. Now, of course, attachment village is a technical term within this book that talks about all these borrowed relationships that we have with other adults that are able to support and help our kids stay attached to parents and adults that will orient them towards maturity and independence. But that idea that we have made as a society our decisions based on economics Which which leads us to spend so much time working so that we can have the vacations and the extra cars and the boats and the trips to Disney, all things that I want. I've made mistakes on this too, lots of them. But the recognition that when I'm not focused on a culture of parental attachment and instead I'm focused on making money, when I'm focusing on providing goods and services for everyone else – Things get out of balance. Disintegration and breakdown is what happens. That's it. That has a lot to do with it. It's just we've got our priorities upside down and we just got to be careful as parents. The most consistent metaphor in the Bible is that family metaphor. I think families were created by God to show us spiritual truths. What can we learn from God's parenting? I I think... You just simply go to what the Lord had to say about parenting and really take it to heart. The first and foremost thing that you show your kids and you teach your kids is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. That shouldn't just be a passive memory verse that's easy to remember. That's got to be totally Uh who we are and that we teach these principles to our kids. I'm a big believer you win your children in the first five years of their life. It's when you win them, and that's when they need our most attention, and frankly, that's when they do the most learning is in those first five years. Think of all the things that the brain learns yeah. in those first five years, and and then the instruction begins in the next years, and then the pre-flight years, those teenage years are opportunities for them to take what they've learned from you and begin to imply it, but you're in the training yeah. business, and so what, what God does with all of us, he's constantly training us. In our house, when it came to discipline, was always reserved for three things. There were only three things that were going to get you a spanking. Number one was haughty eyes or willful rebellion. You do that, I don't care what it is or what it's about, that's going to get punishment. Lying. Clear, willful deception. That's going to be punishment. And the third thing was not holding on to my hand in a parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want you to get run over. Your hand is mine. If in when you're unloading from the car, if we're all still getting out, you've got to keep your hand on the car until we're all ready to grab your hand and we'll walk in together. We still laugh about that today. I'll see my kids with their hands up on the car. We good? Can we go now? Can we leave? But all those were centered around safeguarding their heart, safeguarding their well-being, and safeguarding their relationship mm-hmm. with the Lord. And while the means of bringing them up and the training and the admonition of the Lord may be different, the command's still there, and that belongs to a parent. You are never, ever given any kind of leniency in Scripture to give that role to somebody else. Just look at how God treats us. You talk about a parent that could be embarrassed of their children. (laughs) And let's just, good night. Are you serious? And, And look at God. Is he the perfect parent and that his kids are always perfect? Nope. Not even close. 
Even though he was the perfect parent that all of his kids walked perfectly with? Nope, not at all. Uh, and so we can learn a lot from our Heavenly Father. Yeah. I thought I was going to be taking a left turn on this one, but you really hit at the very end there, Phil, what I was thinking. What can I learn from God? He is the perfect parent. And a bunch of his kids do not respond the way they ought to. And I, so one of the things I think we need to learn is that I, I may do everything right and my kids may still not respond to that. They they may grow up and, and do something completely differently than I taught them. And I think that's very important for us to recognize that parenting is about doing what's right, not about doing what works. So yeah. much of what we do as parents is try to, okay, I'm going to do this because it'll work. I'm going to get my kids to behave the way I want them to behave. Right. I am supposed to parent based on this is the right thing to do. My kids mm -hmm. may not respond to it. They may rebel against it. I think we have this kind of underlying culture, and, and this goes back to Phil's comment earlier about us thinking other parents are judging us. We have an underlying culture that said, if I did the parenting thing, then the kids would behave. And so every time my kids yeah. misbehave, that's a demonstration that I failed. The, yeah. the reality is I failed as a parent in numerous ways. I've made many mistakes. I've committed many sins. My job is now to repent of those and hand those over to the Lord and let him forgive them. My job is to apologize to my kids, and, and I pray that they will forgive me. But my job is not to turn around and figure out what's the pragmatic way to get this all fixed up. My job is, okay, what's the next right thing to do as a parent? Yeah. Do the right yeah. thing and not what I think I can manipulate to get my kids to act the way I want them to. There are a lot of non-traditional family structures out there. What changes when you're talking when when you're talking about a step parent, when you're talking about a, an adoptive parent, when you're talking about a foster parent? What what's different with all these? Um I I think the difference is is that with a biological child who was brought into your home as an infant, raised up, there is a natural connection that you get to build on. In a yeah. step-parent foster-child relationship, that natural connection is not there. I, and I think even probably if you've – I haven't adopted a child, so I don't – I can't say this for sure. But I think probably even if you've adopted a child as an infant, there comes a point at which there is the recognition, okay, that natural connection was not there. And the child recognizes it. The parents do as well. What that does is it makes this collection and connection point all yeah. the more important. Yes. I, it's not saying things are uncontrollable. It's not saying that there's no hope. It's not saying, well, we'll just roll the dice and hope. It says this means I have even more to put emphasis on collecting, of recollecting of connecting and getting that relationship of having them attached to me. Because one of the things that a biological parent has in their toolbox, I don't. So I've got to work even more intently and purposefully with this toolbox. I can't add to this any better than Edwin because he's lived it. We got to be mindful as a step parent or the adoptive parent, foster parent, or whatever role we're now in, that this child is not ours. And I don't mean that negatively or ugly, but every single one of us have that natural instinct to be loved and cherished and have a natural affection toward our biological parents. 
And there's no stage in our life where that ever gets easy to be separated from your biological parents. And I got friends right now whose parents are dealing with Alzheimer's. So they're experiencing a separation (laughs) and it's not easy, even though that's been mom or dad their whole life, just losing that now is horrible. So you've got to keep that in mind. But I'm going to say that what you do is you love them, you cherish them, you be patient with them in that regard and have an understanding of their feelings. And you can certainly work your way through those things. And I think all of us, let's just go back to the character of a child of God. We've been adopted by God. When my kids got a certain age, I let them know I'm not your real father. I'm the dad who was given stewardship over your soul. God is your father. That's your true father. And recognize who he is and love him the same way. And it's in the same way that a child who's adopted today, Lord willing, will recognize this is the father that loves me. This is my dad, maybe not by birth, but he's my dad by choice. And so I think we just got to be patient with the heart and the mind and the insecurities of that child in that relationship. All right. I'm a teen who's been listening to this. I'm horrified at this point because at this point you have told me I need to start ditching my friends. I need to, holy cow, I need to reconnect with my parents. That is the last thing I want to do. I I cannot believe you're going to tell me that I need to throw myself into a situation where I've got to spend time with my parents. What do you tell them? One of the pieces of advice in the book is that you actually don't lay the cards on the table about this to the kids because then you've made it very obvious. Here's what I'm doing. Even though what you're doing is a very good thing to do, now it's just become a manipulative technique that I've told my kids. I'm just trying a new manipulative technique. As parents, we just start working on collecting our kids and see where that goes. For the teenagers who have been listening I'm trying to decide which hat I want to wear on this. Part of me, the hat I want to wear is, please understand, if you've got godly Christian parents, nobody else out there loves you as much as them. Nobody loves you as much as your parents, and nobody is looking out for your best interests as much as your parents. Take a chance on this. Take a chance on this. Connect to your parents. Let them connect to you. You, I just, I want to invite you. There's the other part of me that wants to put on the preacher hat and point out one of the things that I have found fascinating is that there's a lot in the scripture about parents and their role. But when God gave his Ten Commandments to Israel, do you know that the Ten Commandments don't actually talk about parenting? They talk about childing. And the Ten Commandments, the command is honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And that was not just an idea of that you can have a long life. It was an idea of creating a generational legacy of faithfulness to God that God blesses and God preserves and God grows. And so I would encourage you on this teenager who's listening, as scary as it sounds, as unnatural as it sounds, listen to God when he points out that if you really want to have this generational legacy of faithfulness that God blesses and live long on the earth, honor your parents more than your peers. Take a chance on this. I get it. I'm old man. I'm your daddy's buddy. And you think he's put me up to this. I get it, but I want to encourage you, listen to the Lord on this one. 
That's it. <laughs> That's amen and amen. I immediately thought of Ephesians 6 and Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I would almost even go a step further speaking to kids. No, don't take a chance on it. This is God's will for you. And your Heavenly Father knows what's best for you. There's many things in this life that you're going to doubt and are going to be worthy of doubting. If there's anything we've learned in the past year and a half, there's a lot of uncertainties in life. But this is certain. This is solid. This is a foundation. Your Heavenly Father loves you more than you'll ever know. And He knows exactly what He's talking about when He speaks to you as a child. You honor your parents. You honor your parents. And think about it. Why would the Lord not have that as a commandment if He didn't know that was a challenge for us? Humble yourself and honor your parents. And nobody is going to love you more than your parents, just like nobody can love you more than your Heavenly Father and His Son and His Spirit. Okay, what did I miss? Well, I, I don't know that you missed much, but the one thing that that's still in my heart as we're considering all of this is how important it is in this day and age, especially with the digital social media uh, shifts that have occurred since I was a kid. When I was a kid and I was peer attached, it meant that when I was having a struggle or when I was confused about something or if I had a question about something, I talked to my best friend at high school. And, uh, and you know, he led me astray on some things and... Uh, but it wasn't necessarily soul-shattering, earth-changing. The, the thing about being peer-attached today is that there mm -hmm. are so many peers that are through social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. My, my peers are not just the, the kid I go to school with who lives in my same community and probably has some similar background. It's anybody I've connected to online. And, you yeah. know, when I was a kid, I asked my best friend these questions. Mm -hmm. Now we get on YouTube and search for video explanations. We get on Google and search for websites and it's unfiltered. Even if you think you've got it filtered, it's unfiltered. And yeah. so this, this peer attachment is actually a much, much, much bigger deal now for us. And so this, this statement of, Hey, I turned out okay. I'm just yeah. telling you, the stakes are higher, the influences are broader, and look, I'll just, if you think that's not true, I invite you to read another book, Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage. Yeah. It is, yeah. it's just amazing what, uh, what, what the peers, where they're leading folks today. I think one of the things that's happened, and we don't think about it, we know it intellectually, but we don't really think about it, is... They're trying to get answers to questions, but what they end up what they end up learning are a set of values, and those values will start framing the way they see the question, but also what they what they see as potential solutions to a problem. And once those values are adopted and not scrutinized, it can do some well, it can do some real damage. Yeah. And I'll tell you what the deal is about values in this culture we are today. Values are adopted without scrutiny because we just breathe mm -hmm. it in from the shows we watch, the songs we listen to, the the Facebook posts, the the twi tweets, the Instagram, Snapchat, all of that stuff. We just breathe it in. It's just there. Yeah. And, and yeah. it is not scrutinized. And, and that's that's part of the problem. 
I end all of my podcasts with Be Good and Do Good. Both of you guys have answered that one before. So I'm going to have to modify it. What does it mean to be a good parent? It, it goes back to the two greatest commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And in this case, you love your children. You just love your children. To be a good parent is to love your children. It's not about perfect results, but it's about a desire to serve your father and to care for your children. And, and parents, don't, don't listen to the world's definition of good in this regard. A, a great kid is a kid who loves the Lord. A great kid is a kid who respects his parents. And don't put any other kind of expectations on it. And I'll say this too. We have a lot of wonderful great kids all around us. Love them, celebrate them, praise them, and and hug them. We have a lot of great kids and a lot of great parents, and praise God for them. Edwin? When you asked me this before, I quoted scripture, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. And honestly, I, I actually think that's still the same right answer. If I want to do good and be good as a parent, it's taking those exact same principles. Do justice. Be just with my kids. Be just. Love kindness. I mean, isn't that in, in Ephesians when it talks about don't provoke your kids to anger and that sort of thing? And uh, walk humbly before God. Well, guys, I appreciate this. I really appreciate this. I appreciate y'all do doing this. I don't know that I could have chosen two better guys to talk about this. Well, I, I really enjoyed appreciate y'all spending some time. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for you to uh, ask me to be a part of it. And Edwin, always good to see you, brother. And, good to see you, uh, too. Hug bro. that boy of yours for me, would you please? I will. I will. Thank you. This is great advice. I can only speak for myself, but I am someone who bought into the peer attachment idea and have come to appreciate being a more involved parent. These were absolutely the right guys to talk with about this. Thanks, Phil and Edwin. As for the good thing I'm thinking about, I'm grateful for people who have greater wisdom than I do. I have been asking a question today in my private Facebook group, and I am consistently blown away by the answers. It is such a blessing to be able to seek wisdom from others who are interested in spiritual things. If you'd like to be a part of that group, just drop me a line, and I'll be happy to send you an invite. If you've gotten any value out of this podcast, please do me a favor and share it with your friends. Next week on the podcast, I plan to release a conversation I had with Ryan Joy and Brian Shiel, who have their own podcast, The Bible Geeks. These guys are just amazing and a definite part of my tribe. I know you'll love them. So until next week, let's be good and do good.